You are listening to the podcast of New Life Church in Wayland, Michigan. Our longing is to see zero people in our community living unchanged by Jesus. We are a church navigating the messiness of life together in community. One of our core convictions is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. I hope you know there is a place in the family for you here. For more information on gathering times and location, check out our website. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through this word. Man, well, it's so good to have you here with us this morning. If we have not met yet, my name is Brad, and uh, I get to serve as the lead pastor here at New Life. And I am just thrilled that you're here joining us this morning. I see some new faces with us this morning, which is always really, really exciting. And like they said, I would love to connect with you next week for Newcomer's Lunch and just enjoy a meal together. So we're in, uh, we're in week two of a series uh, called Pursued. And really, if you look at the story of the scriptures, it is the story of the God who pursues his people, a relentless, never-ending pursuit of his people. In fact, when you look at where the story ends, where it's headed, Revelation 21, kind of the, the, the you know, kind of grand moment at the end of the story, it says God's dwelling is now with his people. He will, they will be his people and he will be their God. And this is beautiful picture of this kind of coming together, this marriage ceremony of Christ and his church. And so as we continue this series this morning, I would love to pray together and then we're going to jump in. So let's pray. I know we just did, but you can't pray too much. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for uh, today, for another day to be alive, another opportunity to bring you glory. And uh, God, I just pray for people in our community right now. I know there's a lot of people navigating sickness right now um, or health issues. And God, I I just pray for them. I pray they'll feel your presence in a unique way, that um, they will be healed quickly. I know others are are navigating uh, financial or relational burdens right now. And so, God, I just pray that no matter what we carry into this place or even uh, what we carry while we're watching online this morning, God, I pray your presence will be experienced in a unique way powerful and individual way this morning. God, we love you, and we're gathered for no other reason but to lift your name high and worship you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Chris Arnade is the name of a guy who was a very successful banker on Wall Street. He worked for Citibank, and his life was marked by staring at walls of computer screens on the Manhattan stock trading floor and floods of numbers coming his way every single day. And are there any numbers people out there? Because I'm not a numbers people at all. Like, okay, we thank you for what you do, because that's not me at all. I'm not a numbers guy. But this, Chris was a numbers guy, and uh, he had a very successful career on Wall Street. He had the degree, the pedigree, the salary, all of it. And uh, he was kind of, you know, white collar, top of the totem pole when it came to kind of this profession. But then 2008 hit. Does everybody remember what happened in 2008? The whole economy came a crashing down, right? And Chris's company, Citibank, was no exception. They got hit really hard. However, they were bailed out shortly after that, and Chris was able to continue on in his career virtually untouched and unscathed as a result. Barely touched him. In fact, he made more money after it. But something didn't sit right with Chris, because he would go walking in New York City out of his ritzy Brooklyn apartment, and it would just take a few blocks where he began to see that not everybody's story was touched the same way during the season. 
he would walk and he would see other people's stories of poverty and what it was like to be poor and, and working class. And he, it began to stir something in him. Like, like that was a moment for Chris where he knew he, can't, he couldn't just go back to where he was. Things had to change for him. And so what Chris ended up doing is Chris ended up quitting his job and devoting his life to documenting and telling the stories of working class people. And so he moved from Brooklyn into the Bronx, into a neighborhood that many of his friends said, you don't go to that neighborhood, don't go to that neighborhood. And he moved into that neighborhood and he began doing life with people who were viewed as forgotten people in that society in America. And he learned a lot about those people, but as he was learning about them and documenting their stories, he said, I, I want to know what it's like to live alongside and, and learn the stories of other people in other settings in America that are often considered forgotten or left behind. And so he moved and started living in Rust Belt communities, factory towns like Gary, Indiana, the armpit of America, <laughs> or uh, towns in Ohio where people had been laid off and the workforce had changed drastically. And he began learning their stories and telling their stories with his camera and documenting what they were navigating. He said, okay, I've, I've lived in an urban setting and I've lived in a Rust Belt setting. What do rural communities navigate? And so he moved to Kentucky and Pennsylvania and learned some of the longings and losses of those communities, rural communities. And there is one thing that he said he saw in common with every single community that he lived in and told the stories of. One longing that every community had in, in common with each other. It was a deep longing for dignity. Dignity was the common thread between every community. And for many of those communities, it had felt like Dignity had been stolen from them, that they felt unseen, unheard, forgotten. And what Chris noticed was a common thread for so many communities, is that there was great responsibility, great expectations, but very low dignity. Let me give an example. Maybe you work for a company where you just grind it out every single day and you just you punch the clock, you work hard and you just grind and grind and grind only to end the day with a boss that doesn't see you or appreciate you. Great responsibility, great expectations, low dignity. Or maybe maybe you walk through life and you have a very high just kind of what do people think of me? What do people think of me all the time? And that's constantly what you're asking in any interaction. And so you focus so much on the number of followers you have on social media or the number of dollars in your bank account and you put these high expectations. You bear this weight. You carry this weight. Great responsibility, but low dignity. Or maybe for you, you get caught up in the new year, new me mentality. I said, your value is determined by the number you see when you stand on the scale. And so your mentality right now is, well, I got to work hard so that I'll be accepted. I got to put the work in so that I will have value, great responsibility, low dignity. Maybe, and there's endless examples of this. Maybe you pay the bills every single month and cannot come up with enough money to put food on the table or meat ends meat at the end of the month, especially with inflation right now. High responsibility, great responsibility, low dignity. What is it, like, what are the feelings that come with being in that position? Because I've been there. What are the feelings that that elicits in, in you when you feel like you're in that position? I, I think one is anger. 
maybe resentment, maybe jealousy, frustration. But I want to submit to you this morning that perhaps there is a better story that we were designed for. Perhaps there's a better story that the God of the universe has actually created us to live into. And so I want to talk about that better story this morning together. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1, way at the beginning of the Bible. It's like literally one page in. Genesis chapter 1, and I want to look at how God originally designed humans to be in the world I think it has some pretty important implications for us today. This is what it says in Genesis 1, verse 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own, what? Image. In the what? Image. Let's say that louder. In the what? There we go. Of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So over and over in these short few verses, the same thing is repeated. In the image of God, he created humanity. Over and over, the author of this story really wants us to understand this point, that God created human beings in his image to be visible representations in the world of the invisible God. That human beings were created to show the world what this God is like. And yet Genesis, some of you may not know this, but Genesis was not the first creation story to be written or come on the scene. In fact, there were several creation stories around before Genesis was ever written. And the most popular one by far told a similar but yet very different story about the creation of the world by the gods. This is how this one went. In the beginning, the earth was formless and void and empty and chaos and darkness reigned. That's just how the Genesis story starts. But then out of this chaos, an epic war of the gods emerged. And so you have gods of different elements, like the god of the sea and the god of uh, lightning and the god of all of these different elements warring at war with one another to determine who who would earn the right to create the world. And eventually, after these dozens of gods are warring against each other, one god rises victorious above the others. His name is Marduk. And it's with the blood of his nemesis God who he had just slain that he creates the world. And just like Genesis, land out of sea and birds and vegetation. And he creates, Marduk creates this whole world. But then he realizes, holy cow, maintaining this world is a lot of work and I don't want to do that work. And so what does Marduk do? Marduk creates a slave labor force of primitive creatures called human beings to toil and to work the land so that Marduk doesn't have to. This is the dominant story that Genesis 1 is written into. And yet it's such a different story. Because in Genesis 1, yeah, the earth began and it was formless and empty and chaos reigned. But there weren't many gods. There was one God named Yahweh. Three persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And these three persons were not at war with one another. They were defined by self-giving love towards one another. 
And it was out of this self-giving love, not out of war, but out of the self-giving love that this God, who is unlike all the other gods, created the earth piece by piece, spirit hovering over the waters, father speaking light and land into existence, son being the one by whom and for whom and through whom all of creation is made, together in unity making this earth. And that God sat back after he had finished creating and said, it is very good. And then he made human beings. But he didn't make human beings as a slave labor force. He made human beings with dignity as his partners in carrying creation forward. It is a drastically different story. You see, Marduk's story is a story of great responsibility, humans being slaves, but no dignity. Yahweh's story, God's story, is a much different story. So what does it mean to be made in the image of God? That's like kind of a, I don't know, abstract concept. Well, I want to just kind of demonstrate here for a second for you, what, what it actually means to be made in the image of God. So I, uh, I brought two, um, two money bills here. And uh, if I were to come up to you and I were to offer you, do you want the $1 bill or do you want the $100 bill? Which one would you choose? 100. It's not a trick question. Easy question, right? I'm not because I'm a pastor and I'm poor. I'm not Joel Osteen. We don't have money in the walls of this church. So I've looked. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> of course, we'd take the $100 bill. But, but just kind of on the surface, these look, they feel the same. They're both just a piece of paper. Like, what is it about them that gives one so much more value than the other? The image on them. It's the image they bear. That's what gives them their value. They feel the same, they look the same, but their image is different. And the same thing is true with human beings. That in our world, uh, our world may want to convince you that there are $1 human beings and there are $100 human beings. Not true. Genesis shows us that every human being has been imprinted with the image of God. And you see, we live in a culture of credential dignity, where you are told that your value is based in how much education you have, or how much money you make, or how you look. And ancient peoples knew this well. You see, the people that would have first heard the Genesis message that every single human being was created in the image of God had heard that language, image of God, many, many times throughout their lives, but it was only reserved for kings. Only kings were made in the image of God. Genesis confronts that. It confronts the society it was first written for, and it confronts our society still today to say credential dignity in God's world is not a thing. Every human being bears dignity. And the scriptures are constantly pointing back to Genesis 1, Genesis 1, Genesis 1 as a reason for why you bear dignity. Genesis 9 says, you shall not slay the blood of another human being because why? They're made in the image of God. Psalm 8 says he created human beings a little bit lower than the heavenly beings and crowned us with glory and honor. Ephesians 2 says you are God's masterpiece. James 3 says you cannot use the same tongue to glorify your Father in heaven while cursing others made in his very image. Over and over and over throughout the scriptures, the image of God is used as a reason and a justification for human dignity. And yet, why does this matter? Listen carefully. Don't miss this next part. 
It matters because when you live in a world where you are bombarded with the message every single day, and you go to a workplace or live in a culture or go on social media and you are bombarded from every direction all the time that your dignity and your value is based on your education level or is based on your income level or is based on the way you look, you will be tempted to find and manufacture dignity in every other area. You'll attach yourself to idols. You'll find it in the goals you set for yourself. You'll find dignity, you'll try to find dignity and identity by attaching yourself to a political movement. You'll try to find dignity and, and identity by trying to maintain an image. I'm here to tell you, you already have an image on you. And it's the image of your creator. Genesis 1 flips credential dignity on its head, and it says this. It says, true dignity is not earned. It's gifted by your creator. You can't earn true dignity. True dignity isn't earned. It's gifted by your creator. And you see, to be made in the image of God means that every single human life is sacred. Every human life has dignity. Every human life has infinite value. Let me make that more personal for you. Your life is sacred. Your life has dignity. Your life has infinite value that cannot be measured. This has profound implications for people who hear this message. Super profound implications. Like for the Hebrew slave living in Egypt who may have heard this message eventually in their life. They have lived an entire life believing and being told that their value is based on how many bricks they can produce. Working a seven-day-a-week work week with no rest, only to have their baby boy stolen from them and drowned in the Nile River because their king, their pharaoh, was very insecure. And yet they hear this message. Your dignity is gifted. It's not earned not granted to you by Egypt. It's given to you by your creator. The Jewish family who was exiled to Babylon later in the story, who lost their culture and their name and their faith and everything about who they were, who were being raised in schools, bombarded with the message, Nebuchadnezzar is the one made in the image of God. Nebuchadnezzar is the image of God. Therefore, you're going to bow down to a statue or get thrown in a fiery furnace. These Jewish people needed to hear the message, no, true identity is not earned. It's not granted by the empire. It's gifted to you by your creator. To the woman standing on the scale and disgusted with the number she sees, your, your dignity, your identity, it is gifted. It is not earned. To the laid-off factory worker who grinded and grinded every single day doing the work only to have your job shipped overseas, you need this message Your dignity is not earned. It is gifted by your creator. To the teenager sitting, shaking, terrified in the lobby of the abortion clinic, your dignity is gifted and not earned. To the child developing in her womb, in the safety and sanctuary of her womb, you need to hear the same thing. Your dignity is gifted. It's not earned. To the veteran contemplating suicide, 
you need to hear this too. Your dignity is gifted and not earned. To the nonverbal autistic kid, your dignity is gifted. It is not earned. To the intubated COVID patient, your dignity is gifted. It is not earned. Why do I spend so much time telling us this? Because we are bombarded every single moment of the day hearing the exact opposite message. Human dignity has been so crushed, so belittled, so bastardized and abused by sin in our world that the image of God is barely recognizable in many of us today. And Christian theology teaches that, that the image of God is very fractured because of sin. Now, I'm not going to spend a ton of time talking about sin today because that's another part of the series that's coming up in a few weeks. Yay, we get to talk about sin. But I want you to understand right now that sin has damaged this image. And so how do we live as people on one hand too, who maybe believe that God, God has granted us dignity, who gifts us dignity? How do we live with that truth in a world that desires to crush our dignity every single day? Because I could end this message here and maybe you'd go away feeling a little bit better about yourself, but I will have failed as a preacher if that's all you take out of this message. Like, how do you take this message into your Monday morning at work with the same boss and the same grind? How do you take this message into your Tuesday night with your spouse? Here is the kicker, and I want you to understand this. This is so important to understand. That if Marduk's story and the story that our world is telling us is one of great responsibility but no dignity, this is the story that is being told over and over to us. Great responsibility but no dignity. The story that God desires us to see in the story of Genesis 1 is this, that with great dignity comes great responsibility. That is totally a rip-off Spider-Man. Sort of. <laughs> with great dignity comes great responsibility. In other words, in Genesis 1, God created human beings and he placed his image in us. And then what does he say as part of our image bearing? He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them, these words aren't on the screen, I'm just going to read them here, and let them have dominion, let them have responsibility over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over everything I have created. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, go into the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea. You see, for, for God, the way he created us is that with great dignity comes great responsibility. And God looks at this sinful world today and he was not content with just seeing his image crushed over and over and over in this world by sin. He's not content with the messages that you are sent every single day in this world about your value and your worth being a tie, tied to what you learn or what you earn or how you look like. So what did he do? He bound himself to our human story by sending his son Jesus Christ to reclaim the image of God in us. You see, Jesus is the truest image of God to ever have lived on this planet. Paul, one of the New Testament writers, like towards the end of the Bible, says it this way in Colossians 1, 15 and 16. He says, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Paul is using Genesis 1 language, right? He's sending us back, dominions, ruling. He's using the same exact language. All things were created through him and for him. You see, Jesus came as the truest image of God, but it was not enough for him just to be a human being that was the fullest picture of who God is. What Colossians 1 tells us is that Jesus, as the truest image of God, was both fully human and fully God at the same time. That he alone is the one who binds back together what sin has broken in our image-bearing status. With great dignity comes great responsibility. If you are in Christ, Jesus has already reclaimed the image of God in you. Like if you are saved, if you have received salvation and you are walking with Jesus, Jesus has already reclaimed the image of God in you. And that cannot be stolen from you. That is secure. That is something worth building a life upon. And so what does this mean for your life? Man, this has so many drastic implications for the way that we choose to live through this dignity, through this identity as image bearers. Paul in Colossians takes this idea further just a few chapters later, and he says it this way in chapter 3, verse 10. This is what he says. Put on the new self, which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the what? Image of the one who created it. So what Paul is saying is that in Christ, you are a new creation where the image of God has been fully reclaimed in you. And as a result, the way you live is all about being formed and reformed into the person of Jesus, into his image in the world. With great dignity comes great responsibility. If you are in Christ, you move out into the world and in a completely new kind of way where you have nothing to prove you have nothing to earn you don't have to serve others for love but you can serve them from a place of already being deeply loved you don't have to go to work for dignity you go to work from a place of already being dignified because of who Jesus says you are see our new desire when we are in Christ becomes to throw off, to cast off anything that is out of alignment or incompatible with that image that has been renewed in us. Like when we, when this image has been reclaimed in us because of Jesus, our new desire becomes throw it off. See, too many of us think that Christianity is just get saved, behave, and maybe God will let you in. I think that's far too small of a story to be telling about who Jesus is. It's not even that biblical of a story. Here's a better story. The image of God has been reclaimed in you. And you can see what it looks like through the person of Jesus. And anything that is incompatible with that image, cast that off, throw that off, because the image has been reclaimed in you. This is who you are in Christ. When my uh, six-year-old ever kind of makes a mistake, uh, we've been trying to kind of shift the way we do discipline or talk about the mistake that she's made. And so... Instead of uh, going direct, and I'm super flawed parent, so uh, don't take parent advice very often from me, but um, 
when she makes a mistake, instead of just going like, hey, you did a bad thing, you did a bad thing, we, we've tried to kind of shift our language a little bit with her. And so instead of just saying you did a bad thing, we try to say this, that's not who you are. Like, that's not who Jesus is developing you into, Emery. Like, you, you bullied your sister, but a bully is not who you are. See, there is a powerful difference between just getting that kind of behavior, which is kind of surface level, and showing her that true dignity, true identity is secure. It cannot be taken from her. And so with great dignity comes great responsibility. Your dignity is not up for debate in this world. Can I just be as clear as possible with that? Your dignity, whether you are a factory worker, whether you are a high school dropout, whether you are somebody who just walks into this place with a whole bunch of junk, your dignity is not up for grabs. It cannot be earned, but only granted by your creator, by the one who gave it to you in the first place. So the question remains, and just in the way of applying this, the question remains, what will you do with your dignity? Like if you know that this is secure, what, what will you do with it? What will you choose to do with it? I want to offer a few suggestions here to you. Maybe you're here, and you just have, you have issues with maybe pornography or sexual addiction or a lot of shame in that area. And Paul often in the New Testament talks about fleeing sexual immorality, run from it, but he very rarely ever talks about that without tying it to the image of God being reclaimed in you. He does this in Ephesians, he does this in Galatians, he does this in Colossians. And so when he says flee porneia, flee sexual immorality, what he's really getting at, what he's really saying is that to look at another person with lust, and Jesus spoke to this too, to look at another person with lust actually diminishes the image of God in them and it diminishes the image of God in you. That people were never created to be used as a means for your own enjoyment or to your own end. It's not a, hey, you're like, this is really bad behavior kind of thing. It's, that's not who you are anymore. If you are in Christ that's not who you are. That is incompatible with the image of God that is being renewed in you. Maybe you're here and, and you struggle with things like gossip, slandering other people. And so when the Bible says slander shouldn't be part of your vocabulary, you know what it's saying? It's saying this part of your vocabulary is not compatible with the image of God that has been reclaimed in you. James 3, you cannot praise your Father in heaven with the same tongue that you use to curse people made in his image. Maybe you struggle with anger. Sinful anger, just this rage. Can I just say that's been a part of my story? And there wasn't a moment where God just kind of like fixed that. I'm still a work in progress in that area. I'm not afraid to hide that. But what I know and what I can see is that when I look back at who I was, and where God is calling me into, I'm not who I was. I'm not where I want to be yet, but I'm also not where I was. Why? Because God is reclaiming his image in my life. And he desires to do the same thing in yours. See, as a church, we love to celebrate the kind of big stake-in-the-ground moments of like, I was this way, and then God intervened, and bam! I just woke everybody up. Now I'm this way. And those are worth celebrating. We will continue to celebrate those stories. But you know what stories we don't celebrate near enough? 
the stories of long obedience in the same direction. That I have consistently committed myself to a community. And that day by day, I'm being formed into the image of Christ once again. Sin has desired to steal that. Sin has desired to break that. The world desires to send me every opposite message to that. But day by day, through faithfulness, I am being remade into the image of Christ. The measure of success of our church this coming year is not how many people are in seats or watching online. It's how are we being formed into the image of Christ in our world because that will impact what we take into our workplace. That will impact what we take into our families. That will take what we impact into every context of our life. And so the question remains, what will you do with your dignity? Is there an area that you need to surrender and say, God, this is what I believe you want to work out in my life this year. Maybe it's, maybe it's sexual immorality. Maybe it's uh, language. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's anxiety gotten a lot of messages this week about just people feeling very anxious. We, um, we lost somebody in, in our church on Monday to COVID, and uh, he was a good friend of mine. And so I'm, um, I did his funeral yesterday. There's another family whose um, stepmom's funeral I'm doing tomorrow. And, you know, as a pastor, if, if I just kind of believe that, like, my dignity is tied to how I'm feeling in any given moment. Man, I would be crushed under some of that weight. There's a lot of grief happening around us. And then a lot of people to boot on top of that are saying, I just tested positive and I'm super anxious about COVID right now and all of these things. And like, this is just raining in our world right now, this anxiety. If we do not learn how to take those burdens off our back and cast them onto the person of Jesus, and allow him to carry those on our behalf. We will never be formed in the image that he desires for us to be. We will buckle under that weight. Your dignity is not tied to anything you can do or anything you can earn. It is tied solely to the one who has created you and gifted you his image. Will you honor that image with your life? I would love to pray for us. And then we're going to just respond uh, by standing and worshiping the God who gifted us his image. Let's pray. God, Father, we come before you today and we just say thank you. Thank you that you are a God unlike any other God. You are not a God who simply created us with great responsibility and, and no dignity. We are not your slaves. We are your sons and we are your daughters and you have bestowed upon us a royalty, a dignity that cannot be taken from us. God, even as I think about where the story is heading, Revelation 22, at the very end of the story, you say that we will rule with you. And we have a dignity that is gifted and not earned. May we live into that. May that inform the posture, the heartbeat of our lives. May we take that with us wherever we go. And may we be formed into the image of who you are desiring us to become. And so, God, we love you. And the only reason we love you is because your word says that you first loved us. And so it is in the holy and matchless and worthy name of Jesus Christ alone that we pray. And everybody said,